In less than two minutes, a fire can be fatal. The heat and smoke from a fire can melt clothing to your skin and turn a room completely dark. You won't be able to see, think, or breathe. Join expert fire instructor and consultant Mike Schlattman, a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators and owner of Fire Consulting and Case Review International, and Donna Ingram, a past director of the International Association of Arson Investigators and instructor with over 30 years experience in fire investigation and insurance as they speak with leaders in the fire safety and fire investigation fields. Let's talk about fire behavior, fire safety, and who is out there working for you to be protected from the devastation of fires and those set as a crime. Get tips on how to keep safe what to do in the aftermath of a fire, and handling insurance matters. And now, here are your hosts, Mike and Donna. Welcome to Fire Clue, the podcast. I am honored to be a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators. My name is Michael Slatman, and I have over 45 years of investigation in fires. And this is Donna Ingram, and welcome to Fire Clue, the podcast. I am a past director of the IWI with over 30-plus hmm, years in investigation and training. And we're so glad to be back on the air. Uh, we've got a little bit of a different format, but it's exciting. We're going to talk to fire investigators and the general public about fire behavior, effect, investigation, fire safety, arson, prosecution, and a little bit on insurance claims. So we'll have a series of great workshops here. Yes, we will. And uh, we're not going to talk about all of those today, but we'll, we'll start with, with a very uh, great uh, guest. We are honored to have Dr. David J. Iko, Ph.D., P.E., uh, the UL professor of practice, a professor at the University of Tennessee, and um, an author, well-known author. Uh, he is also the Underwriter Laboratories professor of practice uh, and has, uh, has authored Kirk's Fire Investigation, for Forensic Fire Scene Reconstruction, and Combating Arson for Profit. He served over four decades as a criminal investigator on the federal, state, and local levels. He is presently a professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of Tennessee and teaches classes there. He's also a registered professional engineer and board certified in the National Academy of Forensics Engineers. He's an expert in fire investigation and has testified as an expert witness in criminal and civil trials, including three times before U.S. congressional committees regarding FBI initiatives to detect and prosecute serial arsonists. He was employed as an FBI criminal profiler for over 10 years, and he holds a B.S. and M.S. degrees in electrical engineering and engineering science and mechanics at the University of Tennessee. He also serves as the chair of the National Fire Protection Association's 901 Committee on Fire Reporting. Thank you for being here, Doctor. Uh, we appreciate you. Thank you, too. Uh, thank you for, uh, for 
uh, taking your time out of your busy schedule. Um, I wanted to emphasize that you have uh, has your latest uh, publication is Kirk's Fire Investigation, the eighth uh, edition, which is uh, authored by you and Gerald A. Haynes, um, and is a is a boon, uh, a good training uh, manual for fire investigations uh, and fire investigators. Um, but we're talking to the general public today, so we're not going to talk too deeply about fire investigations uh, other than to to tell the general public that if they uh, if they uh, do an act of arson, uh, we're going to come out and get them. So um, let's let's talk about fire investigation first, doctor. What is uh, fire investigation? Uh, basically, it's a determination of uh the origin, cause, and the development of, uh, of fires and explosions. Yeah, and we, we hear uh, varying estimates on the uh, prevalence of uh, arson in the United States. Um, based on your experience and research, do you believe that the estimates uh, uh, of the national percentage rates are um, correct? Uh, they're not correct. Uh, in fact, they're woefully underreported. And it's uh, based on on several factors, but uh, uh, I base uh, this opinion uh, on my experience uh, as being an IAAI member since 1973, and having uh, looked at uh, at hundreds and hundreds of cases. I've also based it upon um, uh, peer-reviewed research uh, that uh, that uh, I participated in, uh, where we actually went and uh, and did uh, 100% audits of several uh, cities throughout the United States. And why do you think it's underreported? Is it uh, is it due to the the amount of destruction, or is it uh, a lack of training um, in fire investigations? I know that you and I have have taught for I don't know I've I've been teaching in in the, uh, the fire service and police for since 1982. I know that uh, that you have taught all your years. Um, I think we've gotten better. What uh, in fire investigations? Uh, what's your what's your um, uh, impression as to why it's underreported? Well, uh, one is is I believe it's uh, uh, the interpretation of uh, of especially juvenile arsonists. Uh, uh, some uh, researchers tend to say that. Uh, that uh, uh, children who set fires, are, it's basically an exploratory um, process in which they're playing with fire. But I disagree with that. And if you look at the uh, FBI uniform crime reports, uh, half of the uh, arrests in the United States for arson are juveniles. So uh, that basically uh, uh, cuts across the hypothesis that uh, that these are just children playing with fire. And these are uh, cases in which uh, confessions have been obtained and prosecutions have been uh, uh, been uh, uh, set forward. So it's basically the, the interpretation and mindset. The other factor that comes about is the fact that uh, uh, based on the materials uh, that we now have in, uh, in uh, residences and, and commercial establishments, the heat release rates are a lot higher. So back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, 
when I was uh, uh, processing a lot of fire scenes, it was very easy to uh, determine area of origin and sometimes the point of origin. Uh, now, with the high heat release rate uh, materials such as in, uh, in mattresses and uh, in furniture, uh, sometimes you're lucky to get to the room of origin, let alone the quadrant of the room. Um, so uh, uh, the only benefit that we've had from that uh, experience is, is the use of uh, fire sprinkler systems, which will uh, quickly uh, put out or, or uh, control uh, a developing fire. And in those cases, uh, we can get a much accurate uh, determination as, as to the origin and cause of the fire. I want to ask you a question about the juvenile fire setters. Um, what are they being reported as if they're not being reported as arson? Um, if you're looking at some of the national studies, and that's a good question, uh, they are um, being interpreted as children playing with fire. And um, in those instances, uh, those cases are, are declared to be not arson cases. They're, uh, and, uh, and so they get off of the, uh, off the arson uh, counts. And uh, so typically those studies may estimate that uh, the arson rate is uh, six to seven or eight percent of the total fires. Uh, the studies that we did were 100% audits of, of actual uh, jurisdictions, and some jurisdictions were reporting 45 to 50% of their fires to be uh, uh, arson, and those are based on 100% uh, investigations uh, conducted by the, uh, the fire marshals or the fire investigators for those jurisdictions. I actually... So, uh, yes. I actually agree with the with that number, 45 to 50 percent, um, because a lot of the fires that were um, called undetermined are, are were indeed, in fact, set fires, uh, and they weren't just uh, they weren't um, properly uh, classified. I also uh, want to discuss just a titch about intentionally set versus arson because. Some fire investigators, and I won't name the state, are out there saying, well, yes, uh, lighting your fireplace, the wood in your fireplace, is actually an act of arson huh? because it's intentionally set. And this is coming from uh, authoritative departments. And have you had any exposure to that, Dr. Eikhoff? Uh, I, I think it has to do with the interpretation of what incendiary is. And if you... Uh, if you scan through them, uh, it's basically setting a fire where you know that a fire should not have been set. And those are some cases that, uh, that occur. And uh, so for example, uh, uh, setting a fire um, in a classroom, for example, knowing that, uh, uh, that uh, fires are not uh, supposed to be uh, ignited there and then leaving it uh, is definitely an arson. And uh, so uh, also there's been a proliferation now of, of statutes uh, regarding reckless endangerment, uh, where um, it, it becomes like the Walt Disney's uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice, where an individual uh, uh, sets a fire 
um, and uh, may use an accelerant uh, and uh, and the, the fire becomes out of control and uh, and in those types of incidents uh, uh, when we're looking at a tent what we're really looking at is reckless endangerment right. uh, for example um, why would you especially with the dry weather out uh, decide to burn trash in your backyard knowing that the uh, Forest Service has declared it a uh, a, uh, a non-burn day uh, especially with the, the dry uh, surrounding brush and trees so uh, if you took a look at that uh, scenario uh, burning your trash you're talking you're taking a look at reckless endangerment and that's sort of a, a subgroup uh, under the uh, under uh, some of the arson charges and in some cases those statutes are being used now I think that's uh, I think that's great because I've worked many a fire where someone had uh, burning leaves just like you said and it blows up against their house and causes damage or, or burns the neighbor's house and uh, if they have an ordinance or if they have a state law then uh, they can be prosecuted for that um, people have to be very careful when they're um, setting fires, even uh, even in their burn pits in the backyards of the, the United States, where um, they have to take in weather conditions and, and wind direction, etc. And um, but I wanted to talk about the the uh, juveniles too for a second. Um, I know that in a lot of fire departments have a fire prevention program where they'll get a young uh, juvenile uh, who's set a fire and instead of referring him to the juvenile court they will send him through their fire protection or, or uh, course. Do you think that's effective, doctor? Um, I spent a great deal of time uh, looking at the issue of juvenile fire setters mm -hmm. And I believe that um, those types of counseling should be left up to uh, trained and licensed professionals, uh, that is, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, or social workers. And uh, I don't think that that, unless uh, a person's adequately trained and have the right credentials, should be trying to counsel uh, a juvenile because it may... Uh, it may not uh, work out as planned. Mm -hmm. uh, also, uh, there have been jurisdictions uh, in the U.S. that have had successful um, uh, anti-arson programs regarding juveniles, but they it morphed into adult fire setters, and uh, and those were the juveniles who had graduated uh, to a more dangerous uh, a group of of uh, fire setters. And uh, so there are some jurisdictions that uh, uh, that uh, have those adult fire setters or known known arsonist programs. Uh, I have to applaud some of the states that have uh, the laws requiring registration of convicted arsonists, uh, the same way we do uh, sex offenders and other types of uh, uh, felons. So uh, I think the uh, uh, proliferation of some uh, some laws uh, regarding the registration of of, uh, of convicted arsonists uh, may be beneficial in the long run. 
and it also may become a deterrent. That kind of leads into uh, something we want to talk about. You spent almost a decade as an FBI criminal profiler, profiler during the inception of the FBI's National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. While at the FBI, you led the research and development that you were speaking of. What are the common motives for fire setting that your team found? Um, uh, the top three uh, are, uh, by the order of frequency that we saw, were uh, vandalism, and that's where typically the juvenile fire setters were involved in, uh, excitement uh, motivated fire setters, which are young adults, uh, basically the graduates from the uh, in the juvenile program where vandalism turns more into a, uh, a, uh, a thrill-seeking event uh, by setting fires. Uh, we have revenge-motivated fires, which are uh, pretty disastrous uh, when it comes to the fire setting uh, profile because when a gallon of gasoline would have worked just fine, why would the uh, arsonist use five gallons of gasoline? That's sort of overkill. Uh, then we have crime concealment, where fires are used to uh, uh, to cover up other crimes, such as uh, 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 such as homicides, uh, uh, burglaries, uh, uh, also frauds, uh, where they want to destroy records. Uh, so arson has been used across that. It really cuts across the strata. Uh, and of course, then there's arson for profit, which is what uh, the public always. Uh, likes to uh, to to ask questions about whether or not the fire was set uh, by somebody uh, wanting to get uh, material gain either directly or indirectly. And then uh, we have the uh, terrorism, uh, where fires are used to uh, uh, to terrorize communities, such as uh, in uh, in uh, areas in where uh, balloons are launched that uh, have incendiary devices on them that are burning and uh, drop down into uh, into drier areas so terrorism has been uh, has been a new category that uh, that we've uh, really taken a good look at but like i said arson cuts across the strata of a whole series of crimes that they're involved uh, for example one jurisdiction uh, on the east coast of the united states uh, did a research study and found that uh, 30 to 40 percent of their arsons were drug related that is uh, uh, basically, uh, uh, fires using to intimidate uh, or to uh, control uh, other uh, other drug-related activities. So uh, uh, it's it's spellbinding sometimes the uh, the other types of crimes, the related crimes that come about uh, when we're looking at arson-related fires. No, it's like uh, terrorism and the nine uh, eleven. 9/11 uh, twin towers, uh, the uh, the Oklahoma uh, building being blown up. Um, all of these things are are terrorism, and and they're just using uh, explosives instead of uh, uh, that, which is <laughs> explosives. Uh, they're not thought of exactly as a as a fire, but that's what they really are doing, right? And so you you had. Um, how you did this research, and uh, did you actually, since you're a profiler, uh, I know you probably peer-reviewed the research. Did you actually do interviews uh, with arsonists? 
Yeah. Um, the original study uh, was done by Prince George's County Fire Department, their Fire Investigation Bureau, where the, we uh, designed for them a debriefing form uh, where uh, once an arsonist was uh, apprehended and was going through the booking stages and, uh, and in, in a lot of cases provided a, a confession, they, uh, they did a post-confession uh, interview and asked them several questions like, uh, uh, what's your family status? What's your age? And, um, what's, uh, where did you live in relation to where the fire was set? Uh, were you on drugs and, or alcohol at the time? So there were a lot of sociological questions that were asked uh, of those offenders. And that's what uh, uh, put together the, the first study. Uh, we also included um, uh, fire-related crimes, such as uh, false alarms and, and other types of uh, arrests that uh, uh, that were responsible by the by the fire investigation bureau there, Prince George's County. From that is how we developed the uh, uh, the major groupings into uh, into uh, arson-related motives and. Uh, and we actually did statistical tests to show that these were unique in their own. So some very uh, rigorous uh, peer review was done of those studies. Uh, after that, uh, uh, when I uh, uh, went to work for the uh, FBI's uh, National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime, I called upon uh, our, our close friends and uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, uh, ATF, to uh, contribute uh, with this group. And we formed a, uh, uh, basically a task force, a, uh, a working body of, of uh, uh, formally trained uh, criminal profilers. So ATF participated as well as the U.S. Secret Service and the Department of Energy. So we looked at a whole series of, of areas. Part of the research that we were conducting were uh, cases in which we had solved or had worked on uh, in where we identified serial arsonists and bombers. And, uh, and then we went out to the prison systems and, uh, and conducted one-on-one uh, -on -one interviews uh, with, the, uh, with the offenders. From that uh, came additional studies that, uh, that basically validated the, uh, uh, the original Prince George's County uh, Fire Department uh, study which was at that time, and I believe it still is, the largest uh, single study ever done collectively of, uh, of uh, known uh, offenders. So, uh, like I said, a lot of this research, uh, even though it's been done in the past, it continues to be validated and revalidated by follow-up studies. Thanks. Fantastic. Um, we're, doctor, we're going to um, have to take a break here, but I wanted to... Uh, ask you to think about when we come back uh, telling us a story about one of the interviews that you did that you uh, thought was notable. So we'll be right back after this short break. Fire Consulting and Case Review International, FCI, provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet all litigation requirements and insurance claim needs. We also peer review for other investigative firms to ensure they meet NFPA and ASTM standards. Educational and CEU classes are also available. 
Contact Fire Consulting and Case Review International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. That's fcifire.com or 913-262-5200. Consolidated Fire Investigation Services, CFIS, a nationwide member group of over 200 vetted expert fire investigators here to meet the needs of the insurance claims industry in origin and cause, investigation, consultation, and legal matters, complying with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Call 888-445-FIRE, that's 888-445-3473, for one-stop access to over 200 fire investigators ready to meet your needs. Welcome back to Fire Clue, the podcast. We have a great guest, Dr. David Eichhove, and before we went to break, I asked him to think about a, uh, uh, some matter that might be of general interest to the general public, and, uh, and I think that he has one called the Eichhove syndrome. <laughs> Go ahead, Doc. <laughs> great. Um, uh, if you, once you've investigated uh, uh, a lot of fires in your life, you'll end up with some uh, cases that become more easily solved than others. Uh, one morning, I was working for the state, and uh, uh, I heard on the news that a woman had died in the back seat of her car, uh, and uh, I was sort of interested in that. And then they said that it occurred in the city. Uh, I was working for the state, so I had several counties of jurisdiction. So, um, um, on my way into work. Uh, my my supervisor called me and said, how come you're not out there at that case where the woman uh, died in the backseat of her car, of a burning car? And I said, well, that's in the city. And uh, they have six uh, very decent investigators. And uh, my motto in life is I don't go anywhere I'm not invited. So if they'd like to, uh, you know, call upon me, and I was working for the state fire marshal's office, be more than glad to go help them out. So um, uh, this was the largest city, uh, one of the largest cities in the state, and I was out uh, doing other investigations at the time, and then got an emergency call over the radio system, the statewide alert system, and they said that you need to call your chief right away. So I called them. And uh, he said, well, they got the maps out. Uh, that fire is in the county, and that is now your case. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, so I went to, to – uh, I said, well, uh, let me get the details. So I, uh, I uh, went to a service station uh, when they still had cell phones. Uh, they didn't have cell phones, but they still had pay phones, and called my chief. And I got all the details and who was the investigators and things like that. And as I hung up the phone, there was an 18-year-old kid standing behind me. And he said, "Uh, were you just talking about that case in which the woman died in the backseat of her car? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm great about stress management. If you have any stress, you just pass it on to somebody else. So I uh, started... uh, telling him, I said, you know, I, I have an expectation of privacy on the uh, on telephones. There's a famous case, U.S. versus cats. And I didn't want to bore him with the details. But I said, I have an expectation of privacy and you should not be listening in on my telephone calls. 
and he says, well, uh, the, this 18-year-old says, well, uh, if I have any information regarding that case, should I tell you? And I said, of course, spit it out. And he said, well, my brother was out uh, with that uh, woman last night on a date, and I'm pretty sure that he killed her Holy <laughs> and set that fire. <laughs> so I said the uh, couple of the short words that uh, are uh, often said, uh, please uh, get into my car. Mm-hmm. And I drove down to the uh, uh, to the investigations bureau at the uh, at the county sheriff's office, and the four investigators from the city was there. And I said, "You've got to listen to this." And they went ahead and uh, uh, picked up the brother and uh, and put him in jail and held him while we were doing the investigation. We took the car to the medical examiner's uh, garage, which had a lift, and we processed the car. And in the car, the um, the glass from the window, front window shield, had fallen. And as we extracted it, we found a pack of matches uh, sitting on uh, some paper Hmm. and pretty much put together that this was the pack of matches used to set the fire and the fire patterns matched and everything else. And then we found a piece of, of, uh, of a scarf that was shoved down the uh, gasoline filler tube. And so I put all this together and I coached the uh, uh, homicide detective of what to uh, ask uh, the, uh, the suspect. So he goes back and I, I wrote out the list of questions and, and the scenario. So he asks him, he says, oh, by the way, uh, don't say anything. We just want to talk to you. He says, we're going to tell you how you set this fire. <laughs> and, uh, and and said, you know, you went out with this woman uh, and she was going to break up with you. You decided that uh, you were going to have uh, uh, intimate relations with her because we found the uh, uh, found her clothing was off of her at the time uh, the fire and um and you decided that if you couldn't have her nobody could have her so you choked her to death then you took your neckerchief and tried to stuff it down the gasoline filler tube and you and you lit it and it didn't work so then you got some newspapers and we found newspapers in the back trunk that matched what was the newspapers on the transmission pump in the car and then and they pull out the uh, a glassine uh, envelope containing the matches and says, basically, uh, these are the matches that you used. And with our new forensics techniques, we may be able to lift the fingerprints off of the matches that uh, they came out of here. And then there was a pause. And the uh, suspect said, well, if you know that, I might as well tell you the rest of the story and confess totally oh, to yeah. what had happened. That, no, so that's, that's great. That's the Icove syndrome. <laughs> that's the Icove syndrome. So uh, yep. people overhear you talking on the phone and they tell you who did it. That's yep. that's great. <laughs> I I only got one to match, and that's this. Uh, there was a there was a fire in this little small town, and uh, and this didn't happen to me. One of my investigators went there. And he was meeting an SIU, which is Special Investigations Unit uh, investigator for the insurance company. And they decided to go for coffee before they did the fire scene. 
So they walk into this little cafe, and uh, and he's got his uniform on that says, you know, he's a fire investigator and all this. And so he goes up to order coffee, and the woman says, oh, you're here to talk to me, aren't you? And he says, talk to you about what? And he says, she said, the fire, of course, the fire down the street. Yeah, I know who did it. And, and he, so anyway, so she tells them the story. She, um, they take her over to the um, table, and she works there at the restaurant, and, and they take a tape-recorded statement uh, from her, uh, and then they process the scene, and, and then they, they talk to the local uh, constabulary, and, and lo and behold, uh, they caught the arsonist the same day, so... Um, but they didn't do it like you got it, Doc. You've got somebody that just overhears you. <laughs> so that's that's the way that goes. Well, and that kind of leads into the next area I wanted to cover um, because we're talking about pay phones and no cell phones and tape-recorded statements. Uh, Dr. Eikhov, what are your insights and predictions to the emerging issues facing fire police investigators in the next decade. I mean, we've got a lot of technology and things that are going on, and I know that's been helpful, but I'm I'm positive it's been a deterrent, too. Well, um, I was faced with the same um, issue regarding um, uh, the combination of police and fire uh, resources uh, in the arson task force era. Uh, I inherited a uh, uh, basically a uh, 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 request by a mayor of a city that I worked for to form an arson task force. So what I ended up doing was combining uh, two uh, police detectives, teaming them up with two of the fire investigators in the fire department. Uh, the critical issue had to do with uh, cross training, and so um, I firmly believe that the uh, fire investigators of the future, especially those that work for uh, municipalities, need to have uh, not, um, uh, they need to have full law enforcement training. And that doesn't mean going to uh, uh, the minimum number of hours required uh, by the state, such as uh, sometimes they have uh, a four week school or six week school. We're talking about months of training and it all folds back into the area of the technologies uh, and the uh, and the knowledge required by the position to understand not only arson but how it relates to other crimes. Um, and like I emphasized before, you you may come to a fire scene and find uh, an individual who is dead, and uh, they need to make a determination of, of whether or not the uh, individual died of natural or accidental causes. And uh, in Kirk's fire investigation, there's a section that talks about approaching all scenes as if they were, uh, and processing them as if they were a criminal, uh, cr a criminal act or a, a crime scene. Mm -hmm. And so to ensure the factors that uh, all the evidence was collected effectively. So with that, uh, it begs the question that uh, fire investigators need to have adequate training in both the law enforcement side as well as in fire investigations. Uh, so what what happens with that is is that 
they need to go to a full law enforcement academy and be exposed to all of the technology and the uh, and the uh, evidence collection procedures and such, uh, as well as the other uh, criminal offenses. So they'll know and be able to stand on their own uh, regarding these types of investigations. The second thing they're going to have to know is a good understanding of fire dynamics. And uh, this can only come through adequate study and protocols of practice. And uh, uh, the main reason that Kirk, uh, Kirk's fire investigation, the eighth edition, was changed was because we put together uh, the seventh edition of Kirk's fire investigation and blended it with the Forensic Fire Scene Reconstruction book. And with that, we produced a uh, basically a handbook for fire investigators of all of the knowledge that is required, uh, not only from the legal side, but also from the evident, evidentiary collection side, uh, interviewing, and as well as some of the other laboratory technologies and uh, testing technologies that are required, even into the areas of fire modeling. So uh, we're talking about the job description of an individual who uh, basically will end up making this their life's study. Uh, not only will they get the preliminary, uh, the preliminary training, but they'll have to maintain these types of training standards throughout uh, their entire career. And uh, this, is, uh, this is very daunting for some individuals. And, uh, uh, but this is, the, this is what the fire investigator of the future is going to be facing, and that's on the public side. Right, and then, and we use it on the private side too. Uh, your text has been uh, valuable to all of us in the fire investigations field. We have the IAAI, the International Association of Arson Investigators, has CFITrainer.net, which gives out, uh, which is over forty classes that uh, fire investigators can take. Um, but those are just appetizers. They're only. They're only a couple hours, and, and they should uh, spur them on to a reading. Um, Einstein said when you stop reading or stop learning, you start dying. And in fire investigations, you have to stay uh, up to date. In fact, I used, and with your permission, uh, I have used uh, the appendix in uh, Kirk's Fire Investigation, the 8th edition, which every fire investigator should have his own copy of, um, where it explains the JPRs, the job performance uh, requirements that uh, NFPA 1033, the qualifications for fire investigator, are, are listed. The JPRs are uh, well, well explained uh, in your book, Dr., I want to tell you it's a boon to to us, and I have given that uh, class on on those JPRs uh, to Israel and and Kansas and and uh, other uh, chapters. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, you wrote that with uh, Gerald Haynes, um, and it's intended for fire investigators, correct? That's correct, and it's based on the. The life experiences of uh, both uh, Jerry Haynes, myself, and uh, and the former co-author uh, John DeHaan uh, that we have put together. And my adage, and even though it may be crude, is 
I've learned more getting my ass kicked than kissed. <laughs> That's and, uh, right. and, uh, for example, on the JPRs, uh, you know, the one first example we have and we, and they're laced all the way through there. Not only have the JPRs, which says you should, you shall secure the fire scene. You know, what does that mean? So we came up with, uh, with, the after studying some of the other testing procedures around the country with eight factors that need to be put into place regarding how to correctly secure a fire scene. So we've gone beyond what uh, 1033 initially stated and basically came up with a, uh, a how-to guide in ensuring that the scene is correctly, uh, correctly and, and legally uh, secured and maintained. Right. And um, NFPA 921, the guide for fire and explosion investigation, uh, you've been on that committee, have you not, and contributed to that? I was on from uh, 1992 to 2018. So I saw a large, a large change in the, not only the literature, but also the uh, standards of care and procedures uh, that, that were uh, introduced during that time period. And I, I appreciate that because I always recommend that fire investigators throughout the country have three at least texts, and one of them is 1033, here's your qualifications, you have to meet them, 921, this is how you do a fire scene examination, and Kirk's uh, explaining not only how fire uh, fire dynamics work and, and the effects of fire, but also how they can p- complete those job uh, uh, performance requirements. Uh, anybody that's a fire investigator that's listening, if you don't have those three volumes, go out and get them. Um, and uh, and uh, I wanted to bring up something else, Doctor, because you're, you're still active in the field. Um, you do... Uh, you're doing a lot of peer review um, for uh, engineering reports too, aren't you, Doc? Um, yes, and uh, occasionally I'm called upon, and, and this is sort of an introduction to the uh, ICOV Ingram group. Um, uh, we are called upon to peer review uh, engineering reports that are conducted in other investigations. And uh, we use, exhaustively use uh, NFPA 1033 uh, to, to do those reviews, since uh, even if it's an engineer that's uh, looking at the origin and cause of the fire, uh, in a majority of the cases, they have to adhere to NFPA 1033. So um, in the uh, ICOV Ingram group, one of, the, uh, uh, one of the consultation services that we offer has to do with uh, doing peer reviews of cases. And, uh, and, the, and the peer reviews come into three areas. One is in standards of care of how did the, uh, how did the uh, engineer uh, perform as far as to the adhering to uh, all of the NFPA and ASTM standards, as well as other expert treatises. How did they perform on that? Uh, the second area that we take a look at basically is to uh, whether or not that the uh, uh, reconstruction of the fire as to its origin and cause was adequately documented and the, uh, and the right hypotheses considered. And then the third area has to deal with spoliation of whether or not uh, 
uh, evidence was adequately uh, protected uh, and and preserved so that other interested parties could uh, have access to that. Um, from those peer reviews, we uh, we are now uh, with the Icovinga Group. We're now also uh, um, partnering with a consortium of other experts in the field uh, to provide uh, uh, state-of-the-art training in the uh, in those areas and education for uh, uh, for fire and explosion investigators, as well as for uh, uh, other experts such as uh, engineers in the field. Right, and you, you're going to have classes up, aren't you, uh, on the uh, Internet so that people can can uh, attend them or uh, purchase them, I don't know, uh, you know, whatever, correct? Uh, correct. We've already um, pilot tested. Uh, we received uh, with uh, uh, Southwest Research Institute, uh, we received a uh, Department of Justice grant to develop a training curriculum uh, for fire and arson investigators using the CFAST computer fire model. And uh, we came up with a two-day training program. It's already up on the web. It was uh, police officer standards and training post-certified in the state of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And we offered it as a 16-hour course. And uh, right now we're refining it again and again uh, it also has a third day of a train the trainer so that we can bring in other knowledgeable uh, fire investigators and train them of how to promulgate the uh, this course. So it's a fully public domain, but we've re been receiving a lot of uh, a lot of requests, especially from the uh, engineering um, societies to offer that uh, offer that course. So like I said, it's been successfully provided uh, already in the state of Tennessee and uh, other jurisdictions have been inquiring about taking that. Uh, since it was used, it was developed with U.S. government funds, uh, there's, uh, uh, there's no copyrights as to the material. And in fact, some of the material changes about 30% per year mm -hmm. uh, to, to what we have. So uh, it's been pretty exciting, uh, some of the courses. Uh, we've also developed a course um, that uh, uses Kirk's fire investigation as the primary textbook. And so uh, that's been offered uh, uh, through one of the universities and we've uh, been able to successfully uh, port that over into a training, into a series of training modules. So we're looking at those right now to ensure that each chapter uh, has their own um, uh, expert in that, uh, in that area. Uh, to make sure that those materials are correct and, uh, and that the learning objectives are, are met. Uh, the other area with the ICO Ingram group is that we've uh, come up with a uh, what we believe to be a core collection of references, public domain references, and uh, we want to establish a clearinghouse at no charge for uh, fire and arson investigators uh, to uh, to, uh, for us to share that information with. There is a, a whole uh, group of reports and studies that were done, at what we call pre-internet, that we've been able to capture. And uh, so our, our uh, goal right now is to establish a, a publicly available clearinghouse for these uh, advanced training and 
educational studies as, into uh, into uh, fire and explosion investigations. I think so that's, that's a third product that we were looking at. Yeah, well, it's, I know you're you're not only teaching at the at the college, but you're also doing all these other things. But you're also on the road too, aren't you? Uh, you you give classes personally as well as virtually, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And um, one's and, coming uh, up in if, Missouri. So. If you don't teach, you perish. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, I think that's this is just wonderful. Um, I want to be uh, I want to volunteer to be one of your uh, instructors at some point uh, because uh, you are uh, so so great in this field. So talk talk to me one more thing about the iCove Ingram Group. Uh, aren't you also taking cases uh, from, uh, you know, somebody has a, a case they want you to look at, a, 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 you're going to testify in in cases? Is that correct? Um, yes. Yeah, that probably is about uh, uh, a third of our work. Uh, and then basically, like, uh, like I indicated before, it the cases we take typically involve peer review. Uh, by the time that we get involved in these cases, it may be uh, maybe two to f- two to three or four years uh, after the fire, mm. and so uh, we have to to get up to speed and and pretty much uh, put together the mosaic of the facts. Um, however, there are some cases where we were called and said, uh, "Can you be on the scene right away?" And in that case, uh, that does occur. And I just uh, purchased a what I consider to be a uh, a forensic investigator's uh, road warrior. It's a uh, specially designed recreational vehicle that's really just a van, but it has all the uh, uh, all of the materials and products that you might need, including my uh, electronic library, uh, complete internet, uh, no matter where you're located at. And so uh, I've taken that on the road just uh, recently, and it uh, turns out to be uh, everything that a, a forensic investigator might need, especially when you're going moving from state to state. And, uh, it has not only a, uh, a full uh, area for uh, office, a mobile office, but it also has uh, uh, all the essentials that you would need to uh, to live out of it for uh uh, for several days uh, at a scene. So uh, uh, this is the future of, of, of what I see investigations should be, will be, especially mobile offices. And we're talking about cost-wise. Uh, it's not cost prohibitive. We're talking about the typical cost of a high-end uh, pickup truck uh, would be the equivalent of one of these vans. So that's uh, another area that we're working at. And uh, I was at, for example, I was in... Uh, Philadelphia last year, and uh, one of our clients called and said, can you be in Iowa mm-hmm. uh, in two days? And I said, sure. So I got in the van, and it just took uh, uh, it just took uh, a day, basically, to drive all the way from, long day, all the way from Philadelphia to Iowa. That's great. You ought to be uh, marketing uh, what's what a fire investigator should have in his van. That would be a nice, interesting well, list. So you might yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. 
So that's that's my that's our next article. Uh, Jerry Haynes and I and uh, and Tom may have been discussing it. So that's our next article as to uh, the mobile office. Right. Uh, one of the capabilities we have with this RV is the ability to um, use a, a cellular uh, card and rebroadcast uh, a Wi-Fi signal up to a mile and a half from the van. So um, that gives a capability of, uh, if you have other investigators meeting you at the scene, uh, the ability to have active uh, internet access as well as, uh, as well as sharing of information uh, right there at the scene. You know, what's, what really is, uh, gets me uh, a little concerned is the uh, inability uh, to exchange information such as photographs, diagrams, uh, drone air footage, and uh, historical documents uh, readily at a scene. So this solves the problem uh, with doing that, not only uh, uh, contemporaneous to the collection of the data, but also uh, before leaving the scene and making sure that it's done uh, uh, securely. So uh, so we've, I've had to leverage uh, all my engineering skills and radio and satellite communications to, uh, to make this happen. But it turned out that this capability was delivered uh, with this RV, and uh, and uh, and it's uh, we've pushed it to the extent that nobody would ever have thought for it. So, like I said, expect a uh, a short uh, training uh, a bulletin about this. And I, like I said, I believe this will be the uh, the next area. It also has the uh, the RV has the capability of allowing you to uh, decontaminate yourself outside the vehicle so it has uh, uh, water uh, internal water as well as a high pressure hose uh, to be able to spray down and uh, and uh, decontaminate the uh, uh, what you're wearing at the scene so uh, there's nothing worse than uh, than getting into a vehicle and, and, and basically contaminating it with uh, whatever debris is there so right um, so we've had, you know, basically we have a lot of things that can go on. It also has, I was asking uh, uh, the dealer when I picked it up, I said, what am I going to do if I have to tow something? And it comes complete with its own tow package. <laughs> so uh, so uh, a lot of times uh, when I've gone to scenes and you need to, to take away bulky evidence, uh, you just send somebody out to uh, the, local, uh, the local hauling dealer and uh, and rent a, uh, a small trailer, and with this, it's already got the uh, universal hookups uh, for a, for a uh, auxiliary trailer, and just hook it on, and you could take the evidence wherever you need to take it to. You know, that's so a lot of, of yeah. That's a lot of people do not understand how comprehensive fire investigation is. Um, what the, what is done at the scene, what um, what we have to take when we leave the scene, if if there's all the interested parties are there, um, and, and that goes into an entirely different show. Well, I like the fact that both of you have brought that up. Uh, two things: it's a lifelong career choice, and as all I'm going to talk to the fire investigators here, um, 
you know, it goes back to the ABCs, whether you're coming out of fire, police, what did they teach you? They taught you it's the ABCs that'll kill you. Well, that's no different in fire investigation. And granted, you don't walk out the out the door of the academy and instantly become a fire investigator. What Fire Clue and what the ICOV Ingram Group and Fire Consulting International were offering tools to advance your career and become that expert. And it is daunting. I mean, let's be real. You need to know a lot of things, and you need the right tools to get the job done. And you're going to be limited on budgets and so forth, but you need to be wise enough to have workarounds with that. You know, maybe your department's not going to buy you a van, but there's something you can adapt to in that budget. And those are the things that we're here for and part of the podcast. And I know, Mike, you've spent your entire career teaching and done a heck of a job. Dr. Icove, same way, uh, you understand how important it is to use those tools and have those tools available and make sure they're accurate. Right, and the doctor has contributed so much more through his texts. Um, and uh, we we do teach, and sometimes I com- become concerned um, that um, there isn't enough training out there um, uh, or some of the larger um, investigation companies are not requiring training, um, and they should. Uh, so um, you're, you're filling a gap. Uh, Ico Vingram is filling a gap there. Um, and the IAAI uh, has a bunch of training courses, of course, but uh, they're, they're limited in, in uh, how what they can put on in different places, too. It's just the way it is. And there, ha- there needs to be an understanding. Um, I've spent the last 30 years, you've spent your years, and we've paid for our training because that's what you have to do. We go to our IAAI chapter seminars or other uh, different areas. You know, if you're in work comp surveillance, you go and get skilled, and that costs money. But that is what you do for a lifelong career. You invest in your knowledge base so that you can be the best you can be. Right, and I always uh, I always encourage everyone that are fire investigators throughout the country to join the International Association of Arson Investigators, the parent, the parent one, the international, as well as the state chapter, because they'll get the Fire and Arson Investigator Journal, um, which which is always good. Uh, we're going to have in the future uh, officers of the IAAI uh, uh, speak with us, and um, we're looking forward to that. But, Doctor, you're doing uh, great work, um, and I peer review fire investigation reports, too. Um, and, and there can't be, um, can't, can't be enough of that. Um, you, you have to go out of yourself and go to someone else if you're a fire investigator and have them look at it to make sure that you're covering all the bases and that, uh, that your hypotheses are substantiated. And, uh, Doc, you can do that. Uh, you, um, you, and with engineers, a lot of engineers are now uh, doing origin and cause investigations 
Um, I have my feelings about that. I don't know what yours are. What is yours? Um, if you're doing, if you're conducting fire investigations, uh, it's pretty clear uh, and established through NFPA 1033 that you just can't take uh, uh, take a few from column A and a few from column B and be a fire investigator. If you're if you're going to be doing origin and cause, you are conducting fire investigators, fire investigations, and you ought to comply with all of the aspects of NFPA 1033. So to summarize it is, uh, uh, if you're going to play the game, uh, you might as well, you need to adhere to the rules along with them. And 1033 clearly lays those out, not only as to the uh, uh, performance of the investigator at the scene, but also the documentation uh, required and testimony and adherence to the scientific method need to all be covered uh, by that. And a majority of the engineers do understand that. Uh, for example, the National Academy of Forensic Engineers, one of its largest committees, uh, is basically deals with fire and explosion investigations. And we held uh, a, uh, a seminar, uh, a about two years ago, specifically on NFPA 1033 and what the requirements were for the forensic engineers, should they uh, be conducting fire investigations, what they need to adhere to. So we've made it, uh, uh, we've basically placed a bright line out there uh, as to uh, what needs to be, uh, it, to be done uh, for an engineer to do a forensic investigation. Well, we thank you for all of your, your work in fire investigations, and uh, we're going to be having to end this uh, this podcast. Um, doctor, you want to add anything? I, I just want to add my thanks to you. You want to add anything to the general public out there? No, just be, uh, with the times that we're having now, just be uh, safe and keep healthy. Exactly. Thank you so much, and we've really enjoyed this. And we'll be coming back next week. Join us at Fire Clue, the podcast, next Wednesday. That's available on the Fire Clue Network.